I want to begin by uh, reading something to you. Um, and so here it is. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider roads but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy it less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts but more problems, more medicine but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too much, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired. We read too little of God's word, we watch TV too much, we fast too rarely, we give too little, we pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, we love too little, we hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not how to make a life. We've added years to life but not life to our years. We've been all the way to the moon and back but have trouble crossing the street to meet our neighbours. We've conquered outer space but not inner space. We've done larger things but not better things. We've cleaned up the air but polluted our source. We've split the atom but not our prejudice. We write more but learn less. We plan more but accomplish less. We've learned to rush but not to wait. We have higher incomes but lower morals. We have more food and less appeasement. We build more computers to hold more information, to produce more copies than ever, but communicate less. We've become long on quantity, but short on quality. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestion, tall men and short character, steep profits and shallow relationships. These are the times of world peace, but domestic war. More leisure, but less fun. More kinds of food but less nutrition. These are days of two incomes but more divorce. Fancy houses but broken homes. These are days of quick trips, disposable nappies, throwaway morality, one night stands, overweight bodies and pills that do everything from cheer us to quietness to killing us. It is a time when there is so much in the shop window but nothing in the stock room. Isn't that incredible? Shall I print that off and give you all a copy? I don't know who wrote that. But does that not sum up the age in which we live? How do you conquer your inner space? That's a crucial question, isn't it? I've entitled our time together today, What is Life? all about I think there are lots of people who know that question even if they don't say it and I think that article rings true with that question I want to suggest to you that Peter here is answering that very question for us just to recap some of you have been here some of you have missed some of the sessions in the last few weeks we've been thinking about this chapter 1 up to this 12 and we've seen Peter describing 
He's made made no commands yet. He's describing normal Christian experience. And he's done that by describing the inward experiences that we have as Christian believers. And uh, he talks about that. But he also recognises that that inward experience that we can enjoy as Christian people is grounded in objective reality in history. So he's trying to do two things there. There's an inward side to Christianity, but there is an objective side. It's not wishful thinking. It's not pie in the sky. It's not make yourself feel better. The reason we feel the way we do is because God has done things for us in history through Jesus that make a difference to our lives. So it is both inward and outward. It's very important to keep that in balance. And he's running out of adjectives, isn't he? You couldn't read a more positive part of the Bible. And he ends in verse 12 by saying, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels, I don't know how you come to church, even angels long to understand what God is doing in his world. This is exciting, thrilling, eternal reality. And then Peter comes to verse 13 and he says, Therefore, therefore, I've said it millions of times, but I'll never tire of saying it, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to understand what it's there for. Why is that therefore, therefore? Because it links with everything that's gone before. Peter is saying, okay, it's like, so what? All of this is true. What now? So what? You might be asking that after hearing me preach on verses 1 to 12. So what? I hope not. But you may be. Um, how gracious God is to use <laughs> humble instruments. Uh, you can't even say humble with a H. It is, it's like Peter saying, in the light of all that I've just been saying about your experience and what God has done for you in Jesus, this is what life is all about. This then is how you should live. As we go through 1 Peter, he's going to be specific. This is kind of the overview. He's going to get into real detail as we go through the rest of the letter. But here's his pitch uh, at the beginning. In the light of all this, this is how you should live. This is always the case in the Bible. And I hope you understand this. uh, That the Bible is always about information and then exhortation. The Bible is all about here is the truth that you need to know, the light that you need to know, and that should shape the way you behave. You understand that? Those two things always go in that order in the Bible. If there's something wrong with your behaviour, it is because your understanding is defective. Your behaviour will always depend on what you know, the light that you have. And so you need the gospel, you need information, you need God's light, you need God's truth so that that will shape your behaviour. That's always the way it is. And uh, it's no different here. Peter spends 12 verses celebrating, really, all that God has done for his people in Jesus, and then says, therefore, this is your response to that. Okay? So we entitled, we, we said we were going to get into action. We thought about love and joy and hope and evidence, and now we're thinking about action. And uh, now there's a lot here. In these verses, I think you could read these verses and think this is like a whole load of sentences that just seem to be disconnected sentences. So we're going to have to work a little to understand what Peter is saying. And I want to help you by suggesting that there are really 
three main commands here, even though it looks like there's a lot more. There are three main commands here, and here they are. Peter says in verse 13, uh, the ma- we'll, come, we'll come back to explain why I'm saying this. He says, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Before that, it looks like there were two other commands. They're not really the main commands. The main command in verse 13 is about hope. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, the second command that Peter gives in verse uh, 15 is that we are to be holy. So live in hope, live in holiness. But then amazingly, in verse 17, Peter says the, the third command, the main command that's here, is that we should live in fear. That's pretty incredible given how positive Peter's already been. And uh, so we'll come to that one last because it's the third one. So hold that thought. Live, what does Peter mean? Live, in the light of all this, shouldn't we be living in great happiness? What's that all about? Live in fear. What is the place for fear in the Christian life? Doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out fear? Yes, it does. So how do we reconcile those things? So we're going to think about hope, holiness, and we're going to think about godly fear. They're the three things that Peter says are crucial if you're going to live as a Christian in this world. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. Um, What I'd like to do, though, is see that each one of these main commands is supported by two other ideas. I think that will just help us uh, to get to grips with this little section we're going to think about three triangles these are the points of the triangles and then there's two other ideas that support that main idea so three triangles you know I love chocolate any kind of chocolate as long as it hasn't got coconut in it like a bounty never buy me a bounty because I won't eat that any other kind of chocolate I love Toblerones I especially love think of it this morning that we're having a chocolate party um, and uh, I'm going to give you three pieces of Toblerone today I nearly bought a Toblerone to give you all the piece. I should do that. Maybe we'll have some for the fellowship lunch next week. Three pieces of Toblerone. And the pinnacle is hope, holiness and fear. And there's two ideas that support those main three points. And I think that'll help us unlock what's in this passage. Okay. So first of all, this first piece of Toblerone or triangle is about hope. That's what Peter says in verse 13. I don't want to be complicated uh, with Greek and stuff, but... And I don't often say this because I want you to be confident in your Bible. But the NIV isn't a great translation here. It's, it's right what it says, but it, it doesn't really emphasise the hope as it should. The, in, in, in the original language, this verse really should read, Having prepared your minds for action and being self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Can you see that? It's slightly, it sort of sounds in verse 13 like three equal commands. Prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled and set your hope fully. In the Greek, it doesn't really sound like that. It really means having prepared your minds for action, having been self-controlled, set your hope fully. So the main command, the first command that Peter gives is to put your hope in God. And these other two ideas are really the supporting mechanisms to help that to happen. 
Is that clear? Great. That's why I'm thinking of it in terms of a triangle. So, what about this idea of hope? The whole chapter is about hope. Remember that Peter's writing here to Christians who are suffering persecution. And uh, so the whole letter really has got this emphasis of difficulties and trials and persecution and difficulties. But there is this note of hope uh, all the way through the letter. And uh, it's there in verse 13. It's also there at the end of this section that we read, if you remember, just over the page. Uh, He says... And so, at the end of verse 21, and so your faith and hope are in God. It's the same idea, hoping in God. So it's it's like a little hope sandwich, this section. Put your hope in God. At the end, in verse 21, he talks about hope in God. It's all about hope. Go back to verse 3, and you'll see that the way he describes a Christian is that a Christian person, in verse 3, because of God's great mercy, has been born into, what? A living hope. A Christian is a new kind of person. The old has gone. They've come into a new status by God's mercy to them. They've got now a living hope. Not a dead hope, not a boring hope. A thrilling, eternal, living hope. And we looked at that three weeks ago, that God keeps that safe. The future is secure. And he also keeps individual Christians so that you will get there in the end. That is a great thing that uh, Peter talks about here. Paul? I better not steal Peter's thunder and attribute that to Paul. This is all Peter. So it's all about hope. The whole splendour and security of the salvation that God has wrought is amazing. What God has done in his world is incredible. And we saw last week, he's done it all for individual people. He's done it for you. That's what Peter says here. You've been chosen for this very thing. God had you in mind when he planned all this. And he had you in mind when he came to you and did a work in your heart to enable you to respond to this so that you would be born again into this living hope. No wonder he says that the prophets strain to see it, angels long to see it. And here we are in Rotherham in 2010 and you have seen it. It is all from God and it is all for you. But it is interesting, isn't it, that this command comes first. I could ask you the question, if you were writing a letter to some other Christians, what would be the first command that you would give them? You know, I don't know. What would you say? What would be the first main thing that you would want your fellow Christians to do in terms of command? You could tell them, you know, this is the gospel, but... But what would be the first command you would give to them? Some Christians would say the most important thing is, I don't know, not to drink. That would be the first thing you'd say to them. Don't do this. It's a good question, isn't it? What what is the the first command that Peter gives, having celebrated all of this gospel for 12 verses? The very first thing he says is, put your hope in God I want to suggest to you that that sums up Christianity Christianity what, what Peter is celebrating here 12 verses is everything that God has done and the first command that God gives to you in the light of all that is to put your hope in that 
it is not about what you do that, that comes afterwards and we'll come on to that the first thing you need to do is not sort out this, that and the other the first thing you need to do is respond to the initiative that God has taken you haven't been looking for him he has been looking for you he has done it all this chapter is full of God God did it God the Father did it God the Spirit did it God the Son Jesus Christ did it God has done it all God, God, God has done it all your first job is to put your hope in what God has done that's what it means to become a Christian maybe there's someone here who hasn't even done that and you're trying to do all the other stuff but you haven't realised that first of all it's about what God has done for you yesterday someone made a great quote they said the gospel is not something that you achieve it is something that you receive that's a good way to remember it isn't it the Christian life isn't something that you do for God it is something that you receive from God and the first responsibility is that we should repent and put our hope in what God has done through Jesus so this really sums up Christianity I don't want you to think that Christianity is religion or keeping rules or doing this and not doing that we'll come on to that but the first command is respond to God in faith and with hope it's a disposition it's a way of looking at things rather than something to physically do I want you to notice too as we just think about hope in verse 13 Peter says set your hope fully he doesn't say put a little bit of your hope in Jesus and a little bit of your hope in the stock market or put a little bit of your hope in Jesus and a little bit of your hope in this Peter isn't saying here hedge your bets because Jesus might let you down that word fully is really important isn't it we can skip over that and miss it set your hope fully I told you recently that I'd been walking in the uh, Peak District with my two boys Robbie and Ben and um, we went to Kinder Scout and it was a lovely day but as we climbed up the side of Kinder Scout we passed the freezing point and it was amazing on the top I showed you a picture of it once didn't I it was just like thick with snow you couldn't see more than a few metres and I'd said to the boys, you know, let's have the challenge of getting to the top of Kinderscar and getting to the waterfall on the other side. And it's like there's no landmarks, there's snow everywhere. And all we had was a map and a compass. And I was trying to show the boys how to, I'm not an expert at map reading, I did it about 20 years ago in the Boy Scouts, but I, you know, I'm keen for them to learn things. And it's nice as a dad to teach your boys, isn't it? So I said to them, here's a map, and, and we, we pointed the compass in the direction that we wanted to go there were times when we felt we were going the wrong way and it didn't seem right and do you know what, I was so thrilled I was so proud in front of my boys as well they're not here this morning we hit the downfall, pinpoint accuracy I couldn't believe it I was really worried halfway along thinking I'm going to really let myself down and show myself up here but um, this is the idea in this verse isn't it if you want to get through life and to heaven you need to set your compass you can't split your compass in two and go north and south at the same time. You need to get your map and set the compass fully in one direction and then walk in that way, don't you? That's what Peter means. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. And I've got to ask you, on that verse tells me, what, 
What direction are you facing? What is most important to you? Where is your compass pointing? We've talked about Paul already. He gets a mention even though we talk about Peter. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul begins that chapter by saying, Set your minds on things above. It's the same idea. They're both in agreement really. Set your compass towards heaven and walk in that direction. If you don't do that, you'll never get there. You'll wander on in circles. Focus on the hope that you have in Jesus. Set your compass to that. Build your life around that priority and uh, you'll reach the destination with God's hope. So the main command is hope. We need to think about the two supporting ideas. And again, the NIV is right here, but I think there's a better way of saying these things. First of all, Peter says, prepare your minds for action. That is exactly the right thing to say, but I do prefer the older version of the Bible that says this. And this is what the Greek really says. Gird up the loins of your mind. I like that. And uh, I had to say that before I put that up there. So preparing your mind for action is girding up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? I tried to find a picture and I couldn't find a picture. In olden times, in Bible times, people would wear long robes. And uh, you can imagine, I'm sure I would do it because I'm quite a clumsy person. If you tried to then run to, you know, well you wouldn't have buses in olden times, but you know what I mean. If you had a long robe on and you tried to run, you'd be flat on your face in the dust because it would all get tangled up and uh, you'd fall over. So... I did find some instructions on this on the internet, but not a picture. What the, what the men particularly would do is they would take the front of their robe, they would pull it between their legs, get all the slack material, pull it around the front and tie it. It's like a nappy almost. And then they could run. They could, they could work, they could run, they could go to war. And that, that was known as girding up your loins. So the idea of that is being ready, isn't it? If you're, if you're not girding up your loins, you're basically sitting on the sofa having a cup of tea. You're not ready. In the Old Testament, when Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, the Exodus, there were, there'd been nine plagues and the last one was to do with the firstborn. And you know the story. Our God told Moses to tell the people, I want you to put the blood of the lamb on the door and I want you to then eat the roasted lamb and when the angel of death comes, any house that doesn't have that blood on the doorpost, the firstborn, animals and humans, will die. But if you've put that blood on the doorpost, the angel will pass over that house and the firstborn will be spared. But interestingly, God said through Moses to them, I want you to eat with your sandals on. Normally you leave your shoes by the door, don't you? Especially in Yorkshire. It's a thing in Yorkshire, isn't it? That People come to our house and they say, should I take my shoes off? Sometimes we say yes. Sometimes we can't be bothered. But um, it's a thing in Yorkshire. I've never known that in Lancashire. But God said, eat with your shoes on. Would have been an issue for some mums, that wouldn't it? We've really got to put our shoes on. And gird up your loins. Why did God say that? He said it because this night you're going to have to get ready to go. This is the night when you are free. And I want you to eat this meal in a state of readiness for you to go so this idea of being ready is all about 
what Peter says here prepare your minds for action there's lots of other places in the Old Testament where men girded up their loins to run and maybe you can look it up and uh, find that listen to um, Charles Spurgeon just commenting on this uh, aspect of girding up the loins of your mind he says this these are days of great he's writing this in the late 1800s I dread to think what he would make of the early 2000s I think he would be exploding these are days he says the late 1800s of great looseness everywhere I see great laxity of doctrinal belief and gross carelessness in religious practice Christian people are doing today what their forefathers would have loathed try to think what he would have made of now multitudes of professing Christians are but very little different from worldly people men's religion seems to hang loosely on them as if it didn't fit the wonder is it doesn't drop off them altogether men are so little braced up as to the conscientious conviction and vigorous resolve that they easily go to pieces when they're assailed by errors or temptations this teaching is so necessary for today gird up the loins of your mind brace yourself pull yourselves together be firm compact consistent determined do not be like mercury which just keeps on dissolving and running into little fractions do not fritter your life away upon trifles but live with a purpose with an undivided heart and a decided resolution I've said it twice already I dread to think what he'd be saying if he were here this morning (laughs) if that was the late 1800s he says gird up the loins of your mind that means don't let your mind get fat and lazy the mind will wander unless you control it and I want to suggest to you today that spiritual trouble generally begins with a lazy mind you agree with that? our problems generally will start between our ears first we think something then we dwell on it and then we do it and it's like that with anger with bitterness, with lust, with impatience with greed, every sin it begins between the ears in the mind so Peter is saying here In the light of all this, I want you to have hope. And one way for you to have hope is for you to be mentally alert. I I don't know if I've said this to you before, but one of the characters I've really loved, that's too strong a word, been amused by, is the character in Coronation Street, Mavis Riley. Do you remember her? Mavis Riley? She worked in the corner shop with Rita and uh, there was an impressionist I can't do it but she always used to say Rita would say something to her and she would say I don't really know Rita and that that would be she was indecisive she was you know Mavis Riley are you a Mavis Riley Christian I don't really know Rita or it says it in Hebrews chapter 1 it says when you ask God you should believe and don't be a double minded unstable man who asks for something and doesn't believe that God can do it but that's how we live our Christian lives we live like maybe so I don't really know I don't really know whether God can do it I don't really know whether with these promises I've got in the Bible I don't really know don't be a maybe so Christian double minded unstable that's why he says set your hope fully 
Get up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5. If you're taking notes, Paul says this. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's the same thought, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 10.5 The battle is often won and lost in the mind. How can you, what does this look like in real life? This all sounds good. What does it mean for you in your real life and for me? I want to suggest to you, you've got to be serious about truth. If you want to have hope and you want to be mentally alert, the positive side of this triangle is you have got to be serious about God's word. Truth. If you are not drinking in truth, your hope will wither and die. It's interesting, Ephesians chapter 6, some of you will know that famous passage about the armour of God. And Paul says there, buckle up around your waist the belt of truth. Is that a parallel with this? Gird up your look, tuck your clothes into your belt. The belt is what? Truth. Truth is what holds the whole of life together. And if you're not drinking in God's truth and being serious about that, then your hope will die. There's a negative aspect to this. We really need to rattle on, don't we? Um, be sober. This is um, Peter says here in the NIV. He says, "Be self-controlled." Again, the idea in the Greek is really about being sober, and you can understand why it's translated self-controlled. When someone is drunk, it clouds their mental faculties. It impairs judgment. You can't be alert or self-controlled when you're drunk. So Peter is saying here, he's not talking about being drunk, but he's saying mentally, be sober. Think clearly. In this letter, we'll come on to it, chapter 4, verse 7, is it? He says in verse 7 of chapter 4, a couple of pages on, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You won't be able to pray if you're not self-controlled. And later on in chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's telling them to wake up, to be alert, to be self-controlled. So, what's this all about? I think there's a negative side to this. We think about hope. The first side is feed on God's truth. The second thing is, don't allow yourself to become intoxicated with things that would dull your appetite for God's truth. Be sober. What would cloud your spiritual and moral judgment? Any number of things could. One writer puts it this way, a wrong friendship could do it. A harmful TV programme could do it. A habit that you know is hurting you could do it. Certain music can do it. The atmosphere where you work could do it. Certain mementos and memories from the past could do it. Love of new fads and fashions could do it. A desire for acceptance can do it. And this is what the writer says. I'll just read exactly what the quote says. There are some people you ought not to be friends with. There are some books that you ought not to read. 
There are some TV shows that you ought not to watch. There are some places that you ought not to go. There are some films you ought not to watch. There are some internet sites that you shouldn't visit. There are some people you shouldn't go out with. There are some relationships that are no good for you. There are some jobs you shouldn't do. There are some habits you need to break. There are some songs you shouldn't listen to. And there are some people who will only drag you down. Don't be intoxicated by things that would dull your appetite for God's truth. There's a positive and a negative side to it. In, um, in work, um, sometimes we talk about brakes and accelerators. And uh, we, we, we have a focus, often in business, the focus is profit, isn't it? And so we ask ourselves the question, what will accelerate us moving towards that? And what will put the brakes on and stop us achieving that? And we want to do more of this and less of this, and then we'll reach our goal. The Christian life isn't about making money. What Peter's saying here is, I want you to put your hope in God... And the thing that will accelerate that is drinking in God's truth. And the things that will prevent that and make you go around in circles is being taken up with other stuff and being intoxicated and not clear-minded. Being drunk on the world rather than being sober so that you don't make progress and your hope withers and dies. I think this idea of being sober also has the idea within it of being unstable. And you, you know the kind of person who jumps from one idea to the next, the next big thing. And uh, these kind of people are always the kind of people who want everyone else to know what they've come to know. And they can be infuriating. And they found the next thing, the next thing. And everybody needs it. Charles Spurgeon said this as well about being sober. I think this is a good quote. We're always having some new fad or another brought to infatuate the unstable. And very good, but weak-minded people are apt to make marvellous discoveries and to cry them up as if they found the philosopher's stone. And they say, look here and look there. Spurgeon says, I've heard this three, four, five, six times. I've had a quick look. And after all that, there was nothing there worth a second thought. <laughs> the whole world has been going to be enlightened by some new thing, which Peter and Paul never knew about. Something far superior to anything that's ever been known. But the grand illumination hasn't come off yet. And Spurgeon says, be sober. Keep your feet. Possess your souls. Do not be carried away with every wind of doctrine. Do not be like little babies and believe everything that's told you, whether it be a ghost story or a fairy tale. Be sober. Is that an issue for some Christians? I've met a few over the years who have been so unstable and they need to hear this be sober keep your feet on the ground stop dreaming about this and that new thing this is what you need well the focus is hope we need to drink in God's truth and we need not to be intoxicated by the world Peter says to us I want you to live right and to do that you need hope and if you want hope there are things that will increase that and there's things that will decrease that it's a challenge for us I, I want to say just one thing about this you know, I, and I'm saying this to all of you and people who listen to this if you're a Christian person if you've been born into this living hope 
you need to be serious about God's truth. And this is a challenge. Some Christians would call that legalism. Oh, we're free. And uh, this isn't legalism. This is common sense Christianity. If you want to have hope, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to build your life around good priorities. And you need to be serious about the opportunities that God has given you to grow. You need to be in church to hear God's truth taught. Not because it's me, but because it's good for you. And if you're not, your hope will wither and die. You need to get stuck into our growth groups because they're there for you. That is a means of God's grace for you. If you're not there, you're missing out. It's not because it's doing your duty. It isn't to please me or someone else or impress God. It is because it is a matter of life and death. Your hope depends on being serious about God's truth and being fed and committed to that. Sometimes we live the Christian life as if we're trying to drive with the brake on. And you, you'll either not go anywhere, or if the brake's on one wheel, you'll go round in circles. If you want to grow and make progress and have a hope that is living and joyful, as Peter describes here, some, some of you, some Christians, we need to wake up, don't we, and be serious and committed. We need to repent of being lazy and put God first again. I've said enough. And uh, I want you to take that seriously. We're going to move on to something even more serious though. What about holiness? I'm thinking we should stop and maybe come back next week. <laughs> We've got time to cover this one. We might do the last one next week. What about holiness? Here's another triangle for you. And here it is in verse 15. There's a lot in these verses, isn't there? I hope I'm not giving you indigestion. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. What, honestly now, what do you think of when you hear the word holy? Old hymns? Old people? Monks? Goodness? Well, that's good. It certainly includes that. Some people think, oh, I don't want to be holy, I just want to be happy. You can't be holy and happy, can you? I read one quote on the internet about a little boy in church and his dad had like clipped him around the ear for being noisy in church while the preacher was preaching. And he came out of church and said to his dad that it's so hard to be holy and happy at the same time. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Holiness, I think many people think, what a boring subject. Holy, being holy. Well, this sermon isn't about holiness, but we need to just touch on this, don't we? I want to suggest two things to you about holiness. First of all, holiness is, has within it the idea of uniqueness. Um, you know the Lord's Prayer. It's not really the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer Jesus taught the disciples to pray. It's really the disciples' prayer, but the Lord taught it. Our Father, who art in heaven... What's the next line? You all know it. Hallowed be your name. Do you know what that means literally? It means, oh God, Heavenly Father, let your name be set apart. Because you are completely different to anyone else I know. You alone, we prayed it, didn't we, at the beginning. You alone are God. 
God says that all the way through the Bible. I am the Lord, there is no other. He is the sovereign king, the self-existing creator. Nobody made him, nobody can tell him what to do. He is the sovereign Lord. And this idea of holiness, the Bible says, it says it here, be holy because I am holy. Part of what that means is that God is saying, there is no one who is like me. It is possible, I suppose theoretically, that God could be horrible, a tyrant. But the great thing is, the Bible talks about the beauty of holiness. God is unique in his purity. He is holy. He is inherently and infinitely good. And I I don't know if I can really find the words to describe that. Holiness really is the ultimate quality of God. John Piper is very helpful on this. He talks about the difference between God's holiness and God's glory. And he says this, that God's holiness is his unique purity, his otherness. And God's glory is what you see when you look at that. And it's blinding. God's glory is the representation, really, of his holiness. He is unutterably, eternally, dazzlingly, gloriously pure and unique. And we need to remember that, don't we? Do you know what? We forget that. And that's why we have a low view of sin and a low view of holiness and a low view of it in our lives because we forget how amazing and holy and pure God is. There are men in the Bible who came face to face with God's glory and they wanted to die. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, the cherubim you know, in heaven, he sees the train of the Lord's robe from the temple and the, and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah falls down on his face like a dead man. This man's a prophet. This is one of the holiest men who has lived in history. And he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in a people of unclean lips. And mine eyes have seen the king. Oh, that more of us would see that. We're not what we think we are. And for Isaiah, a holy man, to fall on his face like that and wish he was dead. What hope is there for the rest of us? God is holy and we need to remember that. The other idea and the idea of holiness is the idea of separation as well. I'm not very organised at home but I do have a toolbox somewhere, I think. Um, I'm always looking for screwdrivers because I always leave them where I did the last job and I can never remember what the last job was. So that's really hard. I need to start putting things back. But you, you all have things at home that are set apart for a specific task you know that idea so I was fixing my lawnmower the other day went to my garage and I've got a little box with a ratchet and some tools and I got that out of the garage because you know I don't put the kettle on and make a cup of tea with that that little set is set apart to do jobs where I need to undo things that's what it's for it's set apart for that task I don't bounce it on the trampoline or have a bath with it. It's set apart for fixing things. It's the same idea with women's jewellery, isn't it? You know, you, you have jewellery that's special. It's set apart and you only wear it if you go somewhere really special. You wouldn't wear it to go to the co-op 
well some women might you have special jewellery and you wear earrings or whatever it is because you're doing something special this is about holiness as well in the Old Testament God dealt with a whole country the Israelites and he gave them a lot of detailed laws it can be quite boring sometimes reading Leviticus but this is the whole point of these Old Testament laws it was all about this idea of separation and you can plow through all the verses God went right down to the very smallest details and he said to them I want you to set that thing aside for what? fixing your lawnmower? going out to a party? no, I want you to set that aside for me that thing is holy and set apart for me sometimes you will hear maybe older Christians talk about the word consecration God wanted them to consecrate things and set them apart not for something else but for him and for him alone so God's holiness is about him being unique but the idea of holiness also has this idea of things being set apart for God's use and for God alone and ultimately this is what life is for you know when we talk about holiness what we're saying is my life is set apart for God and for him alone that doesn't mean I don't do other things but they're secondary my first priority is that my life is centred and it is for his glory And that gives us a good insight into this idea of holiness. Very quickly, there are two ideas here as well. I don't think we're going to get through the last one. So Peter says, I want you to be holy. This is your response to what God has done in your life. And the first idea that supports that is that you are, as a new person now, you are not to be ruled anymore by your past. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. In in the past, you didn't know any of this stuff. None of this gospel had dawned on you. And you were at the mercy of your own desires, selfishness. You didn't even know you were doing anything wrong. And then the gospel comes to you and you realise, wow. And the light dawns. And you put your hope in Jesus as your saviour and Lord. Things are different now. And you are no longer to be dominated and controlled by the evil desires you had when you were ignorant. It's powerful, isn't it? I'm not what I was. I'm not yet what I will be but I'm a new person I'm a child of God as an obedient child do not let yourself be dominated by the evil desires you had when you knew no better before it's interesting that he connects evil desires to ignorance it's that idea of information and behaviour change isn't it and um, we're culpable for that we are blind in our natural state and God holds us responsible for that that's why it's so important we need a saviour but this idea of ignorance being connected to evil desires 
and it gives way to God's light and truth coming in. You've been born again. You have new life. You're not ignorant anymore. So be what you are. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about this. And um, it's all over the New Testament. It's great how the Bible all hangs together. Ephesians chapter 4, he says, verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however did not come to know Christ that way. You're children of light. Now, he says it in chapter 5 and verse 8, they're on the same page. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. You got that? Don't be dominated by your past anymore. And the reason for that, uh, Peter gives us, because he says in verse 15 the whole foundation for this is what we've been talking about over the last month that God has called you how amazing is that he has come to you and he has called out your name and said follow me you're mine I love you I've sent Jesus to pay for all your sins so that you could be forgiven I sent my Holy Spirit to live in your heart to help you live a new life And yes, you have to struggle with all of this, but you are my child. I've called you. You're mine. And what does that mean? If God is the one who's called you and he is holy, should that not mean that you have a family likeness and you are increasingly becoming like him? God has called you. You're an obedient children, he says. Very quickly, I think we'll have to close with this and talk about fear next time leave you hanging with a bit of fear for next week it's not good is it nobody will come John Stott gives this illustration on May 28th 1972 is that right 1972 yes the his childhood he said I remember my father King George V was very strict and sometimes when I'd done something wrong he would admonish me and he would say to me my dear boy you must always remember who you are imagine that the Duke of Windsor the king as your dad my dear boy you must always remember who you are we need to constantly remind ourselves don't we my dear brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ you must always remember who you are you carry the name of the king of kings your behaviour matters never forget that this really is a serious thing you know because 
sometimes you know we're, we're making judgments aren't we about you know whether someone's a real Christian or not I think we're a bit soft hearted you know in our modern culture and in the, in the past godly men you know have been very keen on this if someone says I'm professing Christ godly men would look for evidence they would say okay show me the money <laughs> show me the fruit you call, you call yourself a Christian what's different in your life then J.C. Ryle who was a bishop in the last century wrote a book once about great men in the past George Whitfield, John Wesley, all these guys and this is what he says about them they taught constantly the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness and they never allowed for a moment that any church membership or religious profession was the proof of a man's being a true Christian as a true Christian they maintained sorry a true Christian they maintained must always be known by his fruit and those fruits must be plainly manifest and unmistakable no fruit no grace that was their motto if there's no evidence you can't call yourself a Christian imagine being in a church like that that's how they were we kind of you know tolerate everything don't we these men knew that if you're a Christian an obedient child God says be holy for I am holy if you're not holy something's wrong and you've got to think about that and be serious about examining your own heart and mine, me mine Don Carson a current day American commentator reminds us of the effort involved in being holy listen to this he says this is like the first point we make about hope people do not drift towards holiness apart from grace driven effort people do not gravitate towards godliness prayer obedience to the bible faith or delight in God actually we drift towards compromise and we call it tolerance we drift towards disobedience and we call it freedom we drift towards superstition and call it faith we cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxing we slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism we slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we've been liberated isn't human nature subtle? this is serious stuff isn't it? We need to be very serious about these things. Do you know it's true? I think a writer called A.W. Tozer said this, we're as holy really as we want to be, you know. We're all just about as full of the Holy Spirit as we really want to be. When we tell ourselves that we want to be more holy, we really are as holy as we care to be. It, is, it demands a response, doesn't it? And a focus. At the conference yesterday, this Cockney guy, I don't know if he's a Cockney, but he sounded like a Southerner to me. I call all Southerners Cockneys, it's a very bad thing to say that, isn't it? Duncan Forbes, his name was. When he, he said, I was four years old, living in this flat with my mum. And he said, a lot of the kids in the late 70s were getting taken into care. And he said, in the mercy of God, the council didn't decide to do that with us they decided that every day we had to go to a psychiatric daycare unit as an outpatient for them to help us. Incredibly, the psychologist who they were put in touch with was a Christian. And 
I don't think you'd get, I know some of you work in kind of counselling professions, I don't think you'd get away with this nowadays, you'd get the sack for this. But this Christian said to his mum, do you know why you've got issues? He, he discovered as she talked to him about her experiences that she had made a profession of faith in the past. And the, the issue that she had was she was a Christian, but she wasn't living as a Christian should. And the psychologist said to her, I can give you all the kind of latest counselling guff, but until you put right what's wrong, you'll never be rid of the stress. It won't go away until you begin to live what you really are. I thought I was powerful. And he said as a young boy, he saw his mum change overnight. And a few weeks later, he was so impressed with what had happened to his mum that he became a Christian. And he said, You've never, I don't know what the neighbours must have thought. We were both insomniacs, he said. One o'clock in the morning, my mum would say to me, let's have a praise party. And we'd be going around the, the front room in our high-rise flat, singing songs we just made them up because we were so full of the joy of the Lord. If you try to live the Christian life without really living it, the point from that story is you'll always be miserable. You'll always be broken. You'll always be weak. And until you put your focus on being a Christian and being serious about being a Christian, you'll go around in circles she couldn't get out of bed. She was so depressed. And I'm, you know, some people are ill. For her, it was the fact that she was living a divided life. And what a great blessing for that guy to be able to see that. We're done, really. Um, we'll talk about fear next week. But I want you to just notice finally that these, both these first two triangles are both centred in God. Put your hope in God. And be holy because God is holy. Do you know what the great case of our age is? That people are obsessed with everything else apart from God. People do not sense with reverence how awesomely great God is. And we're just filled with trivia, aren't we? And it says here, be holy in all you do. This is not just about super spiritual Christians. This is not about ministers. This is ordinary Christianity. Be holy in all that you do. Don't ever say, that doesn't matter, it's just trivial. Everything in your life matters. And it is all centred in God. Your hope is in God. Your holiness is in God. One writer said this, and maybe I'll close with this. It's God when I wake up, God in the shower, God around the breakfast table, God on the way to work, God in the classroom, God in the showroom, God in the factory, God at lunchtime, God during my break, God on the way home, God at the supper table, God while watching TV, God while reading my email, God while surfing the internet, God on the telephone, God at bedtime, God while I sleep, God in the morning, all over again, God in every detail, in every place, in every relationship, in every word, in every thought, in every deed, God in my private moments. God with my friends, God with my enemies, God when I'm happy, God when I'm sad, God in the good times, God in the bad times, God in my faith, God in my doubts, God when I succeed, God when I fail, God above me, God below me, God before me, God behind me, God around me, God within me, God always and God forever, God first and last, God under my feet, above my head, all around me, guiding all I do and say, God in my deepest thoughts, always God, always there, always with me, now 
and forever. Is your life centered on God?